Welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for the GC on demand, then you found the freshly rebranded Disco Posse Podcast. Go to discopossepodcast.com for details. everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. Welcome aboard and why don't you introduce yourself and tell folks where they can kind of find you online and stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, I've been working on uh, several open source projects uh, over the years. Um, most uh, the, the well, most well-known projects would be OpenStack. Uh, was one of the early contributors to that uh, back in, I guess, uh, the Cactus days or pre-Cactus days, um, which would be like early 2011, I think, or 2010. I, I can't remember. And <laughs> it was a while ago. Uh, and then uh, and then early with Docker as well. So uh, I moved over to Docker in January 2014 and was working on OpenStack drivers for that. Uh, I worked with uh, several others in founding the Magnum project, uh, which is an OpenStack containers effort. Uh, and then I continued at Docker for a bit, and I worked uh, as a security lead uh, for some time. And uh, now I'm off doing IOPipe. And uh, yeah, so uh, and, and IOPipe is a serverless, right? So that's kind of the um, ho- ho- maybe the, the new hotness that everybody's talking about, right? But um, yeah, I, I want to create some interesting solutions here. Yeah, and it's neat that you've you've gone through this like perfect evolution to land where you're at. I like uh, somewhere in I think it was in your LinkedIn description it talks about you you basically fir- you developed one of the first PaaS you know platforms and and that that real early adopter view you've had and and that participation is interesting because there's not a lot of folks who've evolved like from place to place and yet have always been kind of on that leading edge of it. How did you, how did you come to do that? Like what, is there something inside Eric's head that says, uh, all right, this is stabilized too much. I've, I've got to do something new. <laughs> um, probably there, there probably is. Uh, so actually my, my very first, uh, industry job, I was working at a small hosting company, but, the uh, there there are actually two interesting people there. Uh, one of which is relevant. Um, the the one that's not relevant was actually uh, Brett's uh, Spender uh, or Spencer. He uh, is the leader of the GR Security Project. Um, and then the other uh, developer uh, who is probably a little bit more relevant to this is uh, Nick Costan at CPanel. And you know so you know and what he was doing was building this automation for web hosting. And uh, he ended up uh, later building CPanel as a company, but you know, so I, I got this early kind of exposure to a culture where we were building the security and building, uh, or, or theoretically building the security a certain way, um, and we're definitely building the automation in a certain way. Uh, There's certain things about that I wasn't happy with, and, um, and and actually on the security side as well. And this is back in 2001. 
uh, to 2002. So come 2003, I decide that I want to do my own hosting company and I want to build in security in a better way. So I built something that kind of looks like a platform as a service and you did something that looks kind of like containers but wasn't because it was 2003. And um, so users would have their own web service. Uh, so they would have Java users and they'd have their own Java processes, you know, and it was all on a shared machine. But back then everybody ran as a single user on a single web service. So um, even as rudimentary as that was, it was a you know, fairly decent advantage at the time. Um, that enables to do things also like mod Perl hosting and um, you know, eventually fast CGI hosting and so forth that we were able to adopt all these technologies faster, right? Because we had this container-ish um, approach um, and we had like reverse proxies and things that nobody was doing. And then evolve this into well, you know, what's the next step, right? Because I, I wanted, I wanted containers is what I wanted, but um, since containers really didn't evolve and there were some solutions, but they weren't anything that I really liked, we did virtual machines. And virtual machines uh, were great. Uh, we started doing it in 2006. Um, and we were able to do that at a price that nobody else can do because I was building this horizontally scaling service. Um, so we had uh, WordPress.com was an early customer of ours, and through that uh, through that sale, I kind of you know realized this horizontal link provides um, a, a lower cost basis, right? So we said, let's do a Walmart of uh, of hosting, and we're going to make these VMs. We're going to make them really cheap, and we'll make them self-service. And um, turned out Amazon was also doing this. Um, but, that little you know, that little company, eh? <laughs> <laughs> But this, you know, this is, uh, you know, we're doing it right at the same time. And so I, I kind of evolved these concepts. And in fact, I even had a serverless product in 2010. Um, and I couldn't quite sell it because nobody quite got the idea. Nobody, I couldn't convince people, why do you want, like, why would I want to just give you functions and run them in the cloud um, so that I can control your infrastructure? Because that was kind of the main selling point was, well, you can talk to our MySQL as a service. You can talk to our message queue as a service. You can talk to our uh, web hosting service and you can spawn, you know, these uh, virtual machine instances. And you can save these functions in the cloud and you can run them on demand. Um, yeah, nobody quite got that um, in 2010. So... <laughs> It's the the challenge of being ahead of the ahead of the curve is unfortunately the curve that curve doesn't pay on that part of the uh, <laughs> uh, or they don't understand it right it's it's neat to watch the community finally catch up though in a way right like you where you suddenly go like ah you want to go back and say see I told you <laughs> yeah yeah ex exactly so I, I decide uh, to kind of go back uh, you know leave the entrepreneurial field for a little bit. And you know, take the you know kind of the skills and talents I, I had grown building all of this infrastructure into you know kind of sell it, selling that on the market and using that uh, you know to actually get employed and, and make real money um, you know helping other companies do these things build out the infrastructure um, kind of hoping that this serverless thing would eventually you know become mass market and I can get in early enough on that. So that's kind of where I am. Um, I, I kind of saw serverless finally coming to market and left Docker of all places um, to, you know, to, 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 to do this. And uh, 
you know, we, we can make something of it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's neat how I like that you've wrapped security as a major portion of, of all the pieces you've done throughout your history. And that's often the last piece that that folks think of. They want, they like the automation, they like this the ease of use. And then at the end they go, oh, right, we should backfill some security features in this because we've like that, but it, it should never be the last thought. How did, how did you learn to be security focused as a core part of everything you built? Yeah. Um, so when I learned how to program, um, it was back in the 90s and I started with uh, actually Commodore 64 manuals and I moved on to, um, you know, some like Sam's 21 days C++ book or something. Uh, and then, you know, and then of course the K&R book. Um, but what those taught me were how to write code, but not how to really program. And I, I think the first thing that really taught me about practical programming was applied cryptography. And that was kind of my Bible, uh, you know, my, my first real Bible for how to do, you know, practical, you know, algorithm development, how to, you know, put together code that does something, not just what is the syntax, right? Because, you know, K&R is mostly a syntax book uh, more than anything. Um, and so, you know, I, I really came into my career approaching things um, and, and having, you know, thoroughly digested applied cryptography at an early age. I think I bought that book at like 15 or 16. Um, and that just kind of became, uh, you know, I guess my approach. But then, but the other thing, right, is that infrastructure services, web hosting, all the, the whole premise, right, of these infrastructure services is to provide multi-tenancy backed by, you know, security primitives that, restrict and limit these users, right? Like their interaction between each other while being able to maximize um, that tenancy, right? So we wanna squeeze as many users into as much hardware as we can and maximize, um, you know, profits and maximize margins while also making it secure, right? And, you know, one side of that is infrastructure and the other side of that is security. And if you don't have both of them, you don't have a product. Yeah, and it's it, what we find often is that people, yeah, they they go to release on the idea of like the functionality, and then the security becomes the reason why people get out, you know, because they learn the hard way. And so, talk about you know containers, and you know when you when you kind of when you joined Docker, what was the what was your sort of hope in, in what you were doing as you joined on and, and how did that go while you were at Docker and, and how do you see the that container ecosystem going right now? Yeah, well, I mean, so I joined Docker relatively early. Um, they were still kind of in that transition from .cloud. Um, I don't recall where my first paycheck came from, but I think the .cloud logo might have been on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think the, officially the company had changed names, but, you know, logos and payrolls and everything, you know, may have still been in transition. I, I am not quite certain. Yeah. Uh, but it was very close to the transition period. And, you know, and the market at the time didn't quite figure it out. I mean, I I had figured it out. I actually had uh, known Solomon since 2009, and I would actually seen a, what was effectively a Docker demo back then. So when, Doc, when Solomon gave um, 
my, my uh, the, the team over, I was at Cloud Scaling uh, previously, and he gave a demo over there, and, you know, he gave this demo of Docker. I'm like, well, you know, isn't this what you had four years ago, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it was rewritten, right? It was it's, it started from scratch, um, rebuilt it, and I was already sold, right? I, I had concerns about the security, and I knew for this to be the right play had to be secure because that's the whole premise, right? Is that Docker in a way is a security product. I mean, it's not sold as such, but again, right? It's this infrastructure plus security is what makes the product. And if you don't have both, um, it's not usable. So, you know, I really had some certain concerns about it and I wanted to see those things be solved because I, I knew that there was a strong market need for this. And, you know, it was really frustrating that over all these years, this thing still hadn't been productized. Um, and so, you know, finally Solomon's productizing it and I'm like, okay, that's it. You know, and I was ready, I was ready to leave cloud scaling at the time. I, you know, it was already on my, on my mind. Um, so it took me probably a good still six months or something before, you know, I ended up being ready to, to, you know, to actually make the jump that I had been thinking about, um, and, and did, and, you know, nobody, um, again, at the time, right, like, it was still early where the market was still figuring it out. I mean, while I was at Docker, um, you know, we we did the first DockerCon, something like six months after the fact, um, you know, six months into my tenure there. And it was um, it was interesting, right, because we had, like, 500 attendees, uh, 500 more on the waiting list, and there was really less than standing room uh, at, at the first DockerCon. You, you couldn't really, like, it, it felt like a... a um, was it uh, at a at a con at a concert, right? Uh, the mosh pit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, it was like as if there was a stage, and you know there was like a big star there, and and you couldn't move. Um, that that was it was really that tight and constrained. There was so little space. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just it just took took off like a rocket. And it's funny because when you're in that rocket, it doesn't it doesn't feel that way. You don't see that growth. Um, at least it, it didn't for me, and I, and I think for many of um, the others, it didn't. Right? We didn't really see how it was taking off from ins inside the ship. And, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick out a word, and I don't want to walk you into a like one versus the other thing. But you mentioned rocket and and talking containers. What are your thoughts on <laughs> what What are your thoughts on you know how the, the container ecosystem in general? Uh, how there's sort of multiple offerings coming together. And and again, like I don't want to say one product is better, worse or whatever, but I just, containers as an ecosystem I find are very interesting and it's yeah. it's neat to see. Do you, are you happy with kind of how the the wide ecosystem is, is developing? I think that's good for there to be competition. I mean, the, the lack of competitors is usually a warning sign, you know, for say investors and so forth. So it, it's it's good that there's com competition actually. Um, it's better if that competition is aligned in a certain way, so that the industry as a general is moving, you know, in the right direction, um, you know, and that that is not vicious, you know, competition, right? Yeah. So, you know. There was a, I think there was a time, right? I mean, you know, you had blogs going about the container wars, and uh, you know that was less healthy. Um, what is healthy are things like running on the, working together in the parts that are not as innovative, right? So, Rocket and Docker are both using the core Linux technologies 
to do is containerization. You know, we're using names. They're, they're using names, not we anymore. Um, but they're using, uh, you know, c container namespaces. They're using C groups. They're using, ultimately, right? They're constructing um, what they're calling a container, but they're constructing uh, some a sandbox using the, the pieces of the Linux kernel. They're, they're not proprietary pieces that they're using. They're just talking to the Linux kernel and telling the Linux kernel, you know, up these settings in the kernel for my app in a certain way. Um, that's that's not you know competitive right space for those two companies uh, or those uh, not even companies but projects right open source projects and there's no reason that that shouldn't be something they work together on so you know that's what you know run C and you know the open container initiative you know that, that that's what those things are doing and I think that's good that there are there's more cooperation in that space uh, and, and less co competition um, it's good that they're competing on you know the orchestration and the runtime pieces and the registry that I think that's all very healthy yeah and, and I think I, I'm with you there you know it's it, I've I think somebody asked me one time they said is this going to be you know who who wins the container war and I said customers like everybody wins because <laughs> we're we're creating you know more push towards other products and supporting you know I like uh, I like how Alex Polvey he, he refers to it as filling in the white space around delivering the overall solution, and you know, so networking and security and orchestration and, and all of these pieces, like they just chunk them in, and, and it's nice to see that it's happening. And whatever you know, Kubernetes is fitting into it nicely, and, and there's lots of other products and tools that are that are being made. Uh, Magnum's interesting too. You know how how did you kind of come to to say, all right, you know, we we need this uh, to fit into OpenStack, and and this is, mm -hmm. you know, because you proposed it, you you were PTL for uh, for the Docker driver for Nova already, uh, and how did how did Magnum come to be? Yeah, so it, so when I came into Docker, uh, the Nova Docker driver had already been developed. Um, the developers of Docker that had developed that, you know, were not you know, hadn't been working in the OpenStack environment uh, really much at all. I mean, they just kind of wrote some code and threw it over the fence and were like, okay, great. Um, and the idea of how to maintain that code and the, and the life cycle of that code, um, I'm not certain, you know, how much it had really been considered, right? You know, it was, I think it was a bit of a shock of, oh, wait, you know, we have to maintain this code and, and do something with it. Uh, on the mean, on the other side was, this code's actually not super useful, right? So we're trying to figure out how do we make this code useful, and then a lot of pushback on, well, we don't want Nova to do this, right? OpenStack Nova is the compute project. Um, it's this this Docker driver is not super useful because it can't do this and it can't do that, and a lot of the, these really great advantages of Docker can't be realized in Nova. So how do we do that? And um, you know, a lot of the conversation was, well. It doesn't belong here. Like you know, for for the design sessions, you know, uh, there's a lot of ideas of what doesn't belong here. We shouldn't extend it over to this. We shouldn't do that. Um, and the questions ultimately came down to, well, what should Nova do? What shouldn't it do? And does it make sense to maybe have a separate project for containers? And you know, the, that went on for you know a few months, right? You know, uh, I guess two or three summits. Um, I guess technically three summits. Uh, Hong Kong was first introduced, which 
was the ice house summit. Yeah. And then um, by Atlanta, the idea was, okay, I think we're pretty much, you know, uh, convinced that this is not going to work as it is. We actually at that point had already had um, a mid cycle as well, where we really talked it through, we got in a group, a working group to figure out what is it that we really need from containers in OpenStack. And they kind of work backwards from there, right? Are these things the things that fit in Nova? Are these things that fit into a different project? And by the way, this container ecosystem is heating up. We have Docker, we have Swarm. This Kubernetes thing looks like it might be taking off. Um, are we competing with these things? Are we integrating these? How does this work? Um, and of course, the other thing that we considered was, do we need anything at all, right? Are Swarm and Kubernetes enough? And do we not need an OpenStack project? And the consensus became that, yes, there needs to be a project. No, the project doesn't need to do a lot. The project needs to basically be the glue between uh, Nova, Docker, um, you know, LXC, Kubernetes, Swarm. Just, uh, excuse me, um, it needs to be a, a Neutron, right? Neutron being a big part of this. Yeah. That it needs to be the glue, right, that makes these services work. Um, and we're going to make this a, some sort of elastic container engine, uh, right? And so, so we come up with this, and we, we come up with the plans, and the the project doesn't make a lot of progress initially, um, because we still have this, you know, matter of like who's going to work on it, and the actual, you know, the actual architecture of this, right, is not clearly defined. We have really the the use cases and the um, any idea defined, but not necessarily the architecture. So by the time we get to Paris, um, you know, we have um, at, at some point I work on an architecture and I have that pretty clearly in my head and somewhere in like the, the, the hotel in Paris, I put together a proof of concept and show it to Adrian Otto uh, over at Rackspace and yeah, so you know that kind of becomes the first cut in Magnum, um, and and the proof of concept ended up getting rewritten, um, but that's probably fine. Most of the you know the, the concepts though in the architecture remained, and um, in the end it just became something that kind of controls either Swarm or controls Kubernetes and integrates with uh, Nova and inter uh, interfaces with Neutron, and something like a week after. You know, we, we have all that, you know, in, in the, you know, the GitHub repository and everything's like there's actual code <laughs> and architecture out in the public. Uh, Amazon announces their Elastic Container Service, which uh, <laughs> thankfully was something very similar. So I was, I, that, that's actually a good thing, right? You know, it's like earlier, right? Competition's good and, you know, it, it's not really competitive, right? It's, yeah. Um, I was very happy that OpenStack ultimately had something that didn't look too different from Amazon's, right? Because if it looked too different, then it wouldn't have been good for the OpenStack ecosystem because OpenStack is not a really innovative project. It's um, it's a glue project that allows people to do stuff they would do on Amazon um, in their own environment. Um, it, it really shouldn't be trying to do, you know, something that's wholly unique. Yeah, and I like, it's, it's a good validation. And, and if, you know, some people, they... I've had some people comment, they're like, oh, why is it trying to do what AWS does and, and 
that's exactly why, because we, we like that feature set. We like that functionality. We want that on-premises. We want, you know, we're just simply trying to bring the services and the needs and the solutions in-house and, you know, or, you know, even in public and hybrid and, and all these different models. So it's, uh, I, I like the way you think on that one. So, you know, here we are. And, you know, I saw when you, when you left Docker, I was like, okay, this is interesting. I, I know there's some cool stuff coming. And then along came IOPipe. So tell us about IOPipe. What's the, what made you make the leap and, and what's, what are the goals of, you know, what's, what looks like the start of a project. And I, I bet it's going to be the start of a of good company. Yeah. So, uh, one hopes, uh, especially I, I do. Uh, so, uh, so I, I started it in kind of a roundabout way. Actually, um, I, I started. I actually, rather than starting with how do we approach a serverless problem, I said how do we approach the problems of IoT? Um, how do we approach some of these problems in uh, our infrastructure and architecture that we have today? And I saw this composability of resources and the the sprawl of APIs being an issue, and so I approached it from, from this really kind of odd angle, right? Um, especially considering my background, and that probably met, made uh, meant that it took me a little bit longer to get to where I am, um, but ultimately I realized that all these problems that I had could be resolved using Lambda functions. And if I have Lambda functions, I can make those serverless functions. And that we could, we could enable developers to solve all these next generation problems using serverless if we give them the right tools. So, uh, so yeah, I, I kind of started, I guess, with the problem space, right, and worked back to the solution. Um, with the, thankfully, with serverless, because you know serverless um, is very aligned with, I guess, my background. But um, it, so you know, I'm building this tool to enable developers building those next generation apps. And it's um, the, the 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 core part about IOPipe is, um, or maybe things about it, are that it's about composability of functions. So it's not just how do we build serverless functions and serverless applications, but how do we build those in a way where the functions are composable and we can bring them together to create more compelling applications, um, right? So not just writing serverless functions that are independent, but serverless functions that act together as a larger application um, that we can chain together and um, create pipelines from, for instance, and, you know, create ETL pipelines, for instance, or data um, um, machine learning pipelines. We can create big data pipelines, right? All with a single serverless, um, you know, you know, coding model. Do you feel like this is the, you know, where the APIs were, you know, that, that programmability, uh, you know, in between products and projects was there. And now this is, this is sort of that next you know, evolution of it. I, I, I love the idea of this, you know, you talk about the Lego brick architecture, it's easy to plug in and, and then, yeah, it's serverless. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to, to move it wherever it needs to be with, with simplicity and very, very lightweight delivery. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing with serverless is that 
um, you have lightweight delivery and you also have 100% resource utilization from the developer perspective, right? So you spawn a function, it runs, it shuts down. That's 100% availability, right? You're not, from an operation standpoint, you're not spinning up a VM and having an event loop that runs 24-7. Your event loop, of course, does exist somewhere, but those functions like the, the flames, right? Like the flames of your app, those are entirely running ephemerally in the cloud. Right. Right. Just that core event loop needs to be somewhere, of course, but sometimes that event loop might not even be your event loop. It might be um, in a, you know, a webhook that's triggered some, from somebody else's service, right? So people build Slack bots, for instance, and their event loop is Slack itself, right? Because they're a Slack bot. Why, why do they need their own event loop? Their event loop is, is the Slack architecture that triggers their, their Slack bot to run on Lambda. Um, it posts a message, it shuts down, and it's, and it's done. It's uh, and the interoperability is always one that's that's a challenge I think for everybody that's getting started. How did you how did you pick the first place to be able to host? Obviously, you talk about Lambda. That's a great place to attach to. If you're going to pick one carriage to it to hitch your horse to, AWS is the one to start with. <laughs> but you talk you also have uh, 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 Google Cloud functions as well supports out of the gate. You know, where? how did you come to those and, and what do you see as the kind of next steps for where you want to land? Yeah, so really what we're building um, is glue, right? We're building the glue so you don't have to build the glue anymore. So you write your, your application logic and IOPipe connect, creates the glue automatically um, or, or not automatically, but you know, basically it's like there's automatic transmission and the manual transmission to IOPipe. Right. And um, if you use the automatic transmission, then you don't have to write glue code anymore. Um, that, that's the idea, at least. Um, so in doing that, um, it, it makes sense that those functions, um, they're highly self-contained, they're highly sandboxed, and they can run anywhere. And AWS Lambda becomes a really obvious place because now we have this cloud bursting, right? So you can build local applications and wherever that glue is connecting um, becomes a point where we can disconnect and run that code somewhere else. So we can run that, instead of running it locally, uh, we can choose to run that code on AWS Lambda. Uh, we can run that code on Google Cloud Functions. Um, those are the two obvious choices, right? Um, for, for where to run the code. There are other serverless platforms and there's no reason we wouldn't be able to support those um, besides potentially some compatibility issues um, that not all the platforms behave the same way. Um, so what we have for that is actually uh, two classes of functions, right? We have functions that can only kind of run in this um, port portable way and they can run anywhere and then functions that are like, um, I, I hate to say cloud native because it's the, it's the wrong term, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. um, platform native, right? Um, you know, functions that might only work on AWS Lambda, right? And of course, you'll still be able to use those with IOPipe, but they may only work on AWS Lambda. They're not going to work on Google Cloud Functions. Um, meanwhile, um, you can also definitely write functions in a way where they're going to run everywhere. And um, part of that is also providing educational resources so that developers know how to build their functions in a way where they can run anywhere. Um, you know, we're looking at things like where functions will be able to run on GPUs, for instance. Um, 
So you can burst your functions to a GPU or you can run them in the cloud. Uh, a use case that came to mind, for, for instance, is image uh, manipulation. So you can run, like you could build an application, like a function that if you run it on mobile, it might use the GPU to yeah. do image manipulations because mobile doesn't have a lot of power, but they have GPUs and GPUs have a lot of power for that kind of function, like image manipulation. But if let's say you were a image hosting service, it might be more prudent for you to actually do a cloud pipeline for that rather than a GPU pipeline. So you just can spawn up, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 Lambda uh, functions. And that's exact same code without any modification. Do you, um, do you I think see, I came off your question a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's good. You know, and do, do you see... Do you see yourself and and this type of approach as as early? You know, I mean, well, it is early. I'm for a lot of what we call yeah. the enterprise crowd, right? But I see also a lot of heat around this this type of approach, and I like it. You know, do you think that this is something that, like, how do you coach somebody into saying, hey? You're doing something today, like you said, you're running it in a VM, you're monitoring 24-7, you're waiting for events to happen. Why not move to, to this serverless approach, event-driven approach? You know, how, how do we coach people into seeing that this is the right approach to a lot of stuff that's happening today in traditional architecture? Yeah. Well, I, I think the cost savings, right, are, are really is what's going to push this because you have uh, something like, you know, 90 to 100%, um, you know, savings uh, for the developers who are building applications this way rather than running. I mean, think about how much it costs just to, like I want to build a Slack bot and put it on um, an EC2 instance. It's going to cost me, what, $15, $30 a month to, to run that so I can have an event loop. Um, yeah. if, 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 if Slack itself is my event loop and it just triggers Lambda functions, that brings it down to like, 50 cents a dollar per month, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the, the just, you know, the per function count, right, can potentially be kind of high, but it's, when these things are happening, especially infrequently, it's much less expensive. And um, it's also much less expensive than running, like if you have a highly scaled application, let's say you want to be ready for Black Friday, right? I mean, this Black Friday, uh, you know, example is where like organizations are really going to see it. Like, they think about how, like, you're 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 a retailer getting ready for Black Friday. You're going to spin up, you know, another hundred or two hundred or a thousand machines, right? So you can be ready for Black Friday, and then Black Friday comes, and you hope that it handles all the load. You hope that you scaled out enough, and when Black, you know, after Cyber Monday and or Cyber Week, you you, you scale things back down again, right? And you're like, okay, now we're going, you know, now now we're back to where we normally are. Um, and meanwhile, you have to monitor all those systems. You have to, you know, all the operational complexity of that. Um, or you can just be built around Lambda. And when Black Friday hits, you do nothing. Right. Right. Just nothing. <laughs> you just, yeah. oh, great. You know, it's just operating as normal. Yeah, and even like you said, if it if it suddenly has to scale because you have massive influx of of you know what will ultimately do revenue, right? If you've got application yeah. load that's that's being driven, even if the cost per function is rising, think of what that horizontally scaled EC2 auto scale would look like. It would be 
equally you know expensive and much more expensive because it also it may not respond as quickly uh, versus lambda is you know it's there when you need it and it's immediately gone <laughs> so <laughs> the, the spin up and tear down is immediate uh, yeah it's it's really really cool I like I like this idea do you see have you had folks sort of resist the concept of serverless and events driven you know because they they're still having trouble wrapping around fitting it into their architecture? Um, I think there's a little bit of, you know, how do, you know, how and when do we build new Greenfield apps that are going to use this? Um, require you to Greenfield anything so you can build serverless functions and integrate them into your app and just run them as part of your app. And if later you're ready to go to serverless, you can run those as serverless functions. Uh, but you could you could actually write those functions and run them embedded in your app, um, or you could have functions that are like local functions that are actually mapped to Lambda functions, right? So they just transparently just become a function in your app that developer calls, but they're actually calling Lambda, right? It, it's very transparent. Um, so I think that will help because a big part of it is well, I have to use the AWS API and APS API tools. Right? Like people who wrap around like S3 code, uh, even today, like they'll tell you it's not the most you know exhilarating experience, right? Um, you know, it's definitely a different programming model to use. You know the, you know AWS SDK and the S and S3 than it is to let's say open a file with whatever your file system management library is. Um, it's a very different experience. Um, and it's the same thing with Lambda, that the, it's not as simple as just calling a function. It should be as simple as just calling a function, but right now it's not. Um, IOPipe is trying to solve that problem. Uh, there are a couple other uh, libraries that have come and, and some have gone that have tried to, to solve that problem already. Um, but yeah, I think that's interesting. And um, th there's also some really compelling use cases for, for, for these serverless, you know, and I hate the term serverless, A, because, you know, um, it's, I just don't like the term. Um, but technically it's running on a server somewhere. You just, we just don't handle the server, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, it, you know, it, it, there's like some trademarking issue, you know, concerns about it. But there's also um, the fact that, you know, we can run, these are just Lambda functions, right? Like the term Lambda, AWS Lambda is actually, the Lambda part of that is it's so great because they are Lambda functions, and they don't have to run on AWS Lambda, right? They can run embedded in your application. Right. Um, we actually, you know, can run those functions on IoT. So you're, you can build, you can build a device. You can run, uh, let's say, an IOPipe application on a Raspberry Pi, and process events that are actual pin changes on the hardware, and that's your event, and it runs those functions locally, or it can run them in AWS, right? Um, so you get this really compelling use case of this is actually a way that you can just develop code in the future that, you know, AWS, Lambda Cloud, like, on the side, I think this is a new way people are going to develop applications, um, period, you know, on all platforms. I love it. Yeah, and and agreed. It's we 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 always get stuck with these terms that kind of get attached to a, a style or an approach, you know, containers, you know, and serverless, and you know, it, all these 
it's you know stylistically yes it's part of the of the approach but yeah i i like that we we want to detach from this kind of you know trademarkish you know type of of name so it's it's definitely interesting how how is your sort of first you know brush of with the community going you know have you had a lot of good feedback on on the first pass yeah so there's um you know it, it's always going to be mixed right um I think there were, you know, in, in of course, in the first pushes, you know, the, the first set of code that I threw out there, uh, which was done almost entirely in the open, um, that then the GitHub repo was private with like 20, um, like, pilot users for a month or so, and then I just threw it out open so that it could be available to anyone. Um, but the initial feedback was that it needs to have AWS Lambda integration, right? right. Um, initially, it was... We, we, right, like we can run the functions locally and we can manage those functions. You can download those functions, you can upload those functions, but you can't ship them to AWS, right? You know, so um, that was like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Like we really should have done that. Um, you know, it seems really obvious in retrospect, but at the time it, it wasn't. <laughs> so, um, so the AWS Lambda uh, integration actually landed just last week or early this week, like over the weekend. Um, and yeah, so like we're, we're still that early, right? Where, um, but the but the idea is that like there are users today that are having problems with how do we compose these functions and how do we, let's say, spawn a bunch of Lambda functions and then wait for them to respond, like come back to us and finish executing and then consolidate those results and then use them for something. Right. Um, IOPipe does all of that today and it, it's great for that. And um, like, I still see users like building that stuff out on their own. And I'm like, Hey, wait, like, you know, we have a library that does that, like use the library. Um, there are a lot of places where I think IOPipe, like this, we still need to get, you know, the feedback is basically, it would be great if it also did this. And then the response is, Great pull requests accept it. Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm gonna put I'm gonna put it on my roadmap, um, and I'm gonna try and get that as quickly as possible. But please pull requests. Uh, you know, yeah, like GitHub.com/slash/iopipe/slash/iopipe. You know, go there, check out the code. You know, submit your you know submit some PRs, submit some issues, um, and yeah, you know it's a. I'm trying to build a community here. I'm not. I mean, yes, I'm also trying to build a company, but. Um, the open source project and the, you know are are not like the project came f from me and the company came from me, but they're not you know um, they're they're only so coupled, right? Um, yeah. You know, this is something where um, like you know Docker always you know kept Docker very close to their chest um, and, and sometimes maybe too much so. Um, you know I'm trying to build an open source project in a community first. Um, and I'm also building a company, but that company's intention, the goal of that company is not to drive an open source project. Right. The goal of that company is to build value, you know, for its users and value, of course, for its investors as well. Um, but the goal of that company is not to manage an open source project, right? So the open source project belongs to its community and we need to build that community. So um, whatever IOPipe doesn't do, um, the feedback is always great. It should do that. Let's, you know, let's add it. Let's, let's get, you know, work together and make those things happen. Nice. 
Excellent. Well, we're winding up on time, but Eric, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat today and, you know, wish you uh, wish you luck with the future of this. We'll hope to drive a lot of eyes to to what you're doing with IOPipe and, and you know, both as a, as a project and as a company, you know, I, I want to see successes on both sides. It's, it's nice to see folks that have, and you've been a great community contributor. And I love that your, your focus is on that, that, you know, it's, it really, really helps to differentiate how some, some sharing goes on. You know, it's, it, it has a much, you know, you said we can't be completely altruistic. We've, we've got to pay rent and, and <laughs> other expenses, but I love that your focus is community and the, the secondary piece, which, you know, is the, the corporate side of it that you, we have to maintain. But again, you know, thanks for taking the time today. How, how do we uh, get uh, folks to get a hold of you if they wanted to, to chat more and find out more about IOPipe? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, this website, IOPipe.com. Um, and then uh, my email address, uh, you, you can, I, I'm, I'm really asking for it now, right? Uh, I'm yeah. giving my email address, uh, eric at iopipe.com. Uh, that's Eric with a C. And uh, there's also uh, Twitter, of course, um, uh, which is ewindish, uh, E-W-I-N-D-I-S-C-H. And uh, yeah, so t Twitter, uh, email, the website, GitHub, um, GitHub, GitHub, GitHub. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. GitHub.com forward slash IOPipe. Uh, you know, get get in there and 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 submit PRs and and you know help to drive this community. I'm I'm excited by the future for it. Are we going to see you at any events in the coming weeks and months? Uh, you know, are because you've shifted away from OpenStack and containers. You know, are are you you're going to be at the OpenStack Summit uh, and and other events like that? So um, I'm, I'm actually speaking at uh, serverless conference. So there is a serverless conference in New York City, uh, May, uh, it's late May, I think the 26th or 27th. Um, but uh, that's, I think, serverlessconf.com. Uh, so that's a, a great new conference that's going to pop up and I'll speak. Um, I may be at OpenStack. I haven't quite decided yet, um, but I will, <laughs> I, I will be thinking about it. Um, you know, it, for, for me, it's a matter of, um, you know, establishing the value right. uh, because, you know, I, I, we're early in a project and making sure that project is successful um, and making sure that our company is successful um, and I have to weigh the pros and cons of, you know, the opportunity cost of attending any conference. Exactly. Well, service, serverless conf, we'll make sure we put in uh, links in the show notes for folks who want to come and, and see you uh, speak there. That'd be great. So again, Eric uh, Windish, thank you very much for uh, for chatting with us today. Uh, for folks that wanted to talk more, you can keep the conversation going in the Green Circle community. Uh, just go to greencircle.vmturbo.com. Again, I'm Eric Wright. You can reach me. I'm at Disco Posse on Twitter. Uh, that's the easiest way to track me down. And uh, thank you again, Eric Windish. We will uh, be looking for the best in the future for IO Pipe. Thank you very much for having me. This is great. Thanks. You're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast.